for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. All right, so we are in week three of our series, The Gathering. I'm preaching this week. Shay is going to be preaching next week, and then... I will be back the week after to do the final message in it, and then we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Luke. And so again, the series title, The Gathering, a Community Set Apart by the Gospel as a Compelling Witness of Christ to the World. Now, in 1990 was the first time I ever saw a running toilet. 1998, I met Kim. In 2005, I became a Christian. In 2012... I had my first child. Well, Kim had the baby. I just, I was there. 2014, I met the man who helped me walk again. And it's this guy, Dr. Christopher Liu. So in 2014, I went out one day, one, it was a Saturday, just to play basketball. And we were hooping and all that. And I tore my patella tendon off completely. And my my knee actually separated, and it looked like my leg was going to come out, and so I couldn't walk. I would lift my leg up, and because of the way your patella tendon works, it would just fall. And, it would, and then the muscle would just sort of seize, so I couldn't walk, and I laid on the floor, and I shimmied myself to the car, and lifted, Kim lifted me into the van, and we drove to Georgetown Hospital, where I met Chris Liu, one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. And he told me, that what happened to me required surgery immediately. I said, why? He said, well, if we don't operate on it, it's just gonna, your body's just gonna, it's just gonna attach itself somewhere and it's just not gonna work right. And so he could tell I was a little bit nervous because I'd never had surgery before. And so what he did was he explained the purpose and the process to calm me down. And so he said, the purpose is to fix your knee. That's what surgery is for. And then he says, it's also to restore you back to health. Here comes the nervous part for me. He's like, the process, though, is we have to put you to sleep. Now I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to die. That's all that's sort of running through my mind. He's like, but we have to put you to sleep. I'm like, why? He's like, because we, we, we have to cut you open. And this is so important here. We have to cut you open to fix it. He had to hurt me to heal me. He had to hurt me to heal me. And then he said, we're going to wake you up and then we're going to send you home. Now, in the message today, what I want to do as we talk about the subject of church discipline, I want to help us understand the purpose and the process of church discipline. The way Chris Liu did that for me, that's why the title of the message is this, the purpose and process of church discipline. Now, there's two types of discipline that the scripture talks about. There's, uh, there's instructive and there's corrective discipline. 
So instructive discipline happens as we just gather together, preach, serve, local community, inside the church, around the world, and we learn from one another. That's an instructive way that we discipline one another. You start to realize, oh, that, that, I, that habit, I shouldn't really be doing that. Then there's also corrective discipline. And this helps disciples by speaking the truth in love. It corrects disciples by gently confronting their sin. And Anthony pointed this out to me earlier today when we were talking about this. He said, Marv, we should actually expect this in discipleship. Corrective, it's a part of the process. And so we actually should be preparing ourselves that at some point, this somebody might have to speak to me on something. And again, Anthony was talking to me and brother Anthony wrote this this week. He said, when the culture thinks about discipline, they think punishment. They think about abuse of authority. They think of lack of freedom. Now he contrasts this, he says, but when the Bible talks about discipline, it's talking about growth. It's talking about reconciliation. It's talking about unity. It's talking about love for one another. I love that. Thank you, Anthony. That's why our big takeaway is this. Church discipline that is motivated by love for God and others, aims to help and protect. The key thing is the motivation. Motivated by love, love for the person, love for the local church, love for the name of Christ. We want to help and protect. That's what drives it. And my aim in the message is to show us that discipline is an act of love. That's what I want us to see. We're gonna, I believe you're going to see this over and over, that to, to, to actually do this is an act of love. And here's this other one. I want to show us that Jesus actually expects us to do this, that this is a part of life together. And so in the message, we're going to answer three questions. Why do we do church discipline? So the purpose. How should we do church discipline? The process. What should we expect when we do church discipline? The results. So that's what we're going to try to do. So number one, why do we do church discipline? To protect the church's witness. First Corinthians 5 says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. So Paul writes the letter to this church and he says, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is going on in the church. Now the word Gentile here is another way of saying unbeliever. And what Paul is saying is unbelievers wouldn't even let this happen. They wouldn't even tolerate this in their midst. You see, Jesus tells the church that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And what he's doing there when he tells us that is that he's trying to get us to understand that the church is distinct. That there's something about us that is different. We are to be different in the world. But the church that sits pretty with sin that loses, starts to lose their distinction. And so Jesus says, if you see sin going on in the midst, then deal with it. Step in in order to protect our witness. This next one, because we want to see people saved. It says, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, this is 1 Corinthians 5, two, verses 2 to 5. I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. 
when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, the way a person can get the upper hand in a game of chess, I don't know how to play chess, but if you know how to, Phil's going like, nah, he doesn't know. I don't know either. It just look, it's one of those games I want to learn how to play because it just looks like, you know, you're real smart if you know how to do it. But you know how people get the upper hand in the game of chess? Well, the flesh can get the upper hand in a person's life and drive them towards destructive sin. And when this happens, God says we are to help. We're supposed to step in and do something. Why? Because the Bible says if you live by the flesh, you will die. And that's talking about spiritual death, separation from God for all eternity, experiencing the punishment for our sin. And so we step in because we don't want that to happen to anybody. We don't want anyone to go, to that, go through that. So we do what we can to help because we care for their soul. We care about where they end up. And you can see that in the text. This next one, because we want to protect the family. Last week I talked about, or a couple weeks back, I said the church is, our church is a family. And so one of the reasons why we do church discipline is because we want to protect the family. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7. Your boast is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be an unleavened batch, as indeed you are. That's so important there. Paul's like, you are this unleavened bat. Be what you, be what you are. He, when you read the New Testament letters, Paul's constantly saying, this is who you are. Be who you are. This is your identity. Live in that reality. And so we, we step in because we know that sin spreads. What this is teaching us is that sin can infect the entire congregation. Cheon said it like this. Sin is like dandelions. If you don't pull them, eventually they are everywhere, right? There's nothing like pulling dandelions on your lawn and you look over and your neighbor's not doing it. You're like, bro, you're killing me over here. They would just spread everywhere. See, a church that practices discipline, what they're doing is they're showing they're committed to protecting the family. They're committed to protecting the congregation because they know this, that unchecked sin will destroy the family. And so we don't want that in our midst. We are. What I'm trying to show here is that in a very real way, when I said this again a couple weeks back, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We are accountable to one another. And we are all responsible in our church family to protect it. Question number two, how should we do church discipline? The process should be patient and intentional. Titus 3 says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, see that? Not a one and done conversation. After warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. And Matthew 18 shows this as well. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Remember I told you, Jesus, I said in the beginning, Jesus expects us to do this. This is Jesus talking. Go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. 
If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. So it's not one and done. Jesus lays out this multi-step process for us. Why? Because in church discipline, this is so important, it is a marathon, not a sprint. And so we have to take our time. And what Matthew 18 actually shows as well is that Jesus in church wants nothing swept under the rug. He wants things out in the open. He wants things dealt with together. But he wants us, this is so important, he wants us to be wise in our approach. How we go about it has to be wise. The first step, he says, is go to him alone. One-on-one conversation. Now, let me give you some tips on how to do that. Here are seven things we should aim for in step one. So you're, you're like, I see something. I'm going to have this conversation. Here, here, are some, here are some steps we should do first. Assess your own heart and make sure your aim is to help. That's the love piece. Sometimes we need to speak to people and, and truthfully what's going on is we just want to hurt them. We just, want to, we just want to shame them, but we need to assess our heart and say, what am I actually wanting here? Do I want this person's best? Do I want to see them thrive? Assess and make sure that that is the case. If you're, you realize that that is not the heart, then you shouldn't go yet. Because only you're just going to cause hurt. Express your genuine love for the person and desire to speak humbly. Share your concerns objectively. Again, I saw you do this. I heard you say that. So it's not just sort of vague. You're being very, very clear as to what is going on. Ask lots of questions. If you want to be teachable, we're trying to gather truth. Then you want to define issues biblically. So you want to use the scriptures. I'm coming to you about this because the Bible says this specifically on that. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Scripture is driving things, not just just my, my feelings or, or my opinion. The word is what I'm grounding things in. Encourage the person towards repentance and give them time for response. And again, if they let you, be, this is a good time to pray together, if they allow. Maybe they're like, you know what, it's just not the right time. And then follow up quickly and assess how the person is doing. Follow up has to be a part of it. And then if you sort of do all of this and then there's a bad response, the person doesn't respond well, now we slowly bring more and more people in. And the goal has to stay in mind, though. As people are being brought in, we got to keep the, the goal in mind. Restoration, winning your brother or your sister, never losing that fact. You're trying to bring them back into the fold. Now you hear me say all that and you're like, okay, what if I'm intimidated? Well, if you're in that spot, you're like, because it's not easy, right? What I'm talking about here, it's, it's easy to talk about it, really hard to do. So you're like, what if I'm intimidated? Okay, well, seek counsel about how to approach the person. We have one to talk to other people. Being obviously discreet, keeping you know, um, the person's name out of it, information that would maybe even give that away. You're just like, hey, I need to talk to somebody and I'm nervous about it. Can, what, what are your thoughts? Ask the Lord to help you overcome the fear of man. That's a big one. One of the reasons why sometimes we don't speak the truth and love to each other in church life is because it's just the fear of man. And then due to past history or who the person is, you might need to take an advocate with you. That's just, a, that's, you might have to, there's been history before and so you might have to 
sort of go a step ahead. Just situationally, that's what is required. See, what we're trying to, what I'm trying to establish here is that this process shouldn't be rushed. That we take our time. Because when it's rushed, there is hurt. When it's rushed, there's miscommunication. And like Lauren Hill says, when there's miscommunication, there's complications. And so we slow down to make sure we get it right. We want to do it right, so we take our time. Another question that might be in your head, there's a bunch of questions in this sermon, you can tell, but another question that might be in your head is, why does the Matthew 18 process seem different from the 1 Corinthians 5 process? I walked through 1 Corinthians 5, now we're in Matthew 18, but it seems different. You might be asking, why doesn't Paul say that somebody should approach him privately first? A couple things. Because this, the, the, this is a public and significant sin. Every, the whole congregation's in the know. Public, and it's not small, it's significant. Go back and look. And the person is actually boasting about it. Said that in the text. Says, are you are arrogant. There's this boast, there's no repentance at all. It's an open, blatant and so you actually cannot move slow in this situation. Why? Because the person's in danger, the congregation's in danger, others outside the, the church are in danger, the church's witness is in danger, the name of Christ is in danger. And so you have, to, you have to step in. You can't just let it sort of work its way through. So that's why that one looks a little bit different. Then this next one, the process should be spirit-filled, number two, and gentle. Spirit-filled and gentle. Brothers and sisters, if someone is, this is Galatians 6, 1, 6 verse 1, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, filled with the Spirit, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Spirit-filled and Gentle. Now, the, the way uh, a nice, cool breeze is pleasing. You ever, you ever feel that? The other day, we were over at Cheon's. We were painting his spot that they just moved into, and I was walking by myself, and the, the breeze just hit me, and I'm just thinking, that could go on forever. Martina, you ever had, had a nice, cool breeze? You're just thinking, I could... The way a, breeze, a nice, cool breeze is just pleasing, we should make it so that the Holy Spirit is pleased with us in the process, the way we do things, the way we carry ourselves. What we should be doing in the process is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we please the Spirit when we're trying to restore somebody, work reconciliation, bring them back onto the right path. We are, we are to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You're like, which ones? Love. We want to bear that fruit. Patience. Kindness and gentleness. And notice that we're told to watch out. It says, watch out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. The good question to ask is, what's the temptation? Well, the temptation is towards self-righteousness. It's to look at the person and say, oh, I'd never do that. Is to look at the person and say, oh, I'd, I'm ne I'd never be in that sort of spot. When we, are, when we get into that spot where there's self-righteousness, it's very easy to become rude, mean, harsh, and very disrespectful in the process. That's what self-righteousness does. The flesh just rises up, and then all gentleness is gone. That's why, again, in the process, we want to pray. 
You want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm going to take a step to do something that is difficult, that is hard. I need a fresh filling of the Spirit so that in the process, I am moving patiently, thoughtfully, and graciously from beginning to the end. Why? Because you're dealing with a person. Right? One of the things that helps us so much is that we just look at one another and remember, this is a person in front of me, a human being with real flesh and blood struggles, and I need to have grace on them. Number three, what should we expect when we do church discipline? What should we expect? What, what are the, so I've showed you the purpose, I've given you the process, Now we're going to look at some results. There's the first one is a a sad persistence in sin. And it is sad, right? So that's that's why it's there. This sad reality that the person may refuse to repent. And you're like, what does this mean? It means removal from the fellowship of the church. And it's because the elders and the members, the con- elders and the congregation together, are no longer able to affirm the person's profession of faith. See, there's, a, there's sort of like the front door, back door, right? There's baptism. We say we're baptizing someone. We're affirming that their profession of faith. And then they come into the, the church body life and they live within it. And then things start to come up. And then we see things and we, we speak to them. And again, if there's no repentance, then church discipline is is this back door that you have to put the person out of, saying on the front end, it looked like you were in the faith. Your habits now, though, look like you're not. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, so multiple people have gone to them. We've pleaded with them. Tell it to the church and if they refuse to listen even to the church, so we get together, and this, this phrase here, church, really is talking about the, the, the members, the, the, the members of the flock, right? So this telling it to the church wouldn't be some Sunday morning announcement where you're shaming the person. This would be in a private gathering where we're letting the body know about a member saying, this is what is going on. It says, and treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, again, as an outsider, so that's this sad reality. Conrad Mbiwe says, this is the withdrawal of all the privileges that a person was enjoying as a church member. See that? Very important. You can come on up now, Lori. It certainly includes an exclusion from the Lord's Supper. Though the person may be still be welcome to attend worship services, if he is not being disruptive, This is not for those who merely attend church. So important. Not for those who just come to the gathering, but for those who claim to be Christians but are living a sinful, unrepentant life. That's who who this step is for. So it's not just anybody. It's somebody who says, I'm on the team, I'm in the family, and they evidence themselves to be the opposite. And then what does, what does this mean and what does it look like in practice? They're not able to participate in the Lord's Supper. We've, t- we've talked about that. Because in the Lord's Supper, we're declaring, I- I'm committed to Jesus Christ. I'm committed to this flock. There's this unity reality that we're declaring. 
you're not able to serve and hold leadership roles. And this is so important. This is the absolute last step. We don't want to get here. And so you're doing, that's why Jesus gives this multi-step process because you're like, we're trying to do everything we can to not get to this. And the heart still must be to see the person restored and rescued. The heart is so important. It still has to be a heart of love. Even as we're taking this step, we're saying this is what is going on, but our heart is for you to come back in to be restored. And so this means we labor over them in prayer. So you don't just sort of put this person outside of membership and then say, okay, figure that out on your own. You labor over them in prayer. You plead with God that they would their heart would turn, that they would, they would come back into the flock over and over, individually and as a congregation, lifting them up. Why? Again, because we care about their soul. Remember that. We don't want them to end up in that terrible place. And then we pursue and continue. Come back, Shay. We pursue and continue to love and call them to repent. So we, we plead for their souls and we, in prayer, and we talk to them calling them to the faith. And so this is the bad news. That's what one result, that's the bad news. Let me give you the good news, right? Cause you're like, wow, this is kind of bad, but let me give you some good news. Cause there's a good result that could also happen. Yes, there's sad persistence in sin, but there is also true biblical repentance. That's why we do it. Cause this is possible. Second Corinthians five. What this actually teaches is that the person that was talked about, it looks like they repented. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? Well, it looks like in the second letter that Paul writes this congregation that it worked, that the step that he encouraged them to take opened the person's eyes to their reality. It says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, to not exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. So when the person repents, we, 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 we comfort them. We welcome them back in. Otherwise, why? He may be overwhelmed with excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So we welcome them. And when repentance like this happens, this is what this, is what this means. We celebrate God's work in their life. That God can work transformation, that he can truly change people. That yes, sometimes we go off the cliff, we take a, a wrong step, but the Lord can bring us back. We celebrate their humility. All repentance takes humility. Think about the, 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 the prodigal son. When he heads home, the, one of the first things is you see a brother humbling himself. He's like, what am I doing over here? I could go home to my father where there's joy, where there's food. I'm sitting here wondering if I should eat what the pigs are eating. And he humbles himself and he goes home. So we celebrate their humility and their pursuit of grace and forgiveness because our God is a gracious God, a forgiving God. So when you take a step towards repentance, grace and forgiveness is available. There's a good way to speak to the unbeliever right now. Outside of the faith, but... God is gracious. And so if you just take a step towards him and seek forgiveness for your sins, believe the gospel, you will be forgiven. It will be there. That's because of who God is. 
There's no need to move further in the discipline process when this happens. Follow-up pastoral care and congregational care should still happen. Again, there's this, there's this, I'm trying to push here that there's love going on all the time. And the pastoral care and the congregational follow-up is we're just, we're just again, be keeping the person accountable. Just seeing, is, is, is this consistent? Are they bearing fruit? And this is so important. The person might have to still live through the consequences that come from their sin. So when we are forgiven, it means we will never experience punishment for our sin because that's all on Jesus Christ. But because we still have to live life here, we might have to experience the consequences that come with that. So if a person may do something that breaks the law and they receive forgiveness, but they still might have to go to jail because that's just part of, that's just one of the consequences. Their soul is in a good spot but they might have to live through the reality of something that they have done. And if, and if the church needs to step in to help make sure the law is fulfilled, then we're responsible for doing that as well. So we celebrate. Jonathan Lehman said, the underlining purpose of every act of discipline, of course, must be love. Love for the individual, love for the church, love for the watching world and love for Christ. Love drives all that we are trying to do. We care about the person's soul, but we also care about the flock. And we know that sin can spread, so we won't let it just carry on in the congregation. That's why the big takeaway again, just to remind you, church discipline that is motivated by love aims to help and protect, help the person, protect the local congregation and protect the name of Christ. Proverbs, I think there's a verse there, Proverbs 6. Is it there, Shay? Yes. We wanna remember in this, church discipline is an act of surrender to God. Even to I was thinking about this this week as I was thinking about preaching this message. I'm like, I've never talked about church discipline before. This is an act of surrender to preach a message like this. Because again, as Anthony pointed out in the beginning, our culture doesn't like the idea of discipline. It seems so odd, but it's an act of surrender to God. Surrender on the part of the person initiating the process. We don't know how it'll go. The person may be upset with us. The person may reject what we have to have to say. But we surrender and we say, this is the person's soul, the name of Christ is more important. So we step in. It's surrender on the part of a person experiencing the process. Because we're asking the person to surrender and turn back to God, to come back onto the path of life and joy. Proverbs, like I said earlier, Proverbs 6, 23. Corrective discipline is the way to life. That's, what we're, that's why we're doing it. It takes the person who is in sin off the path of death and helps them come back onto the path of life. Their soul matters to us. And so we step in and do the hard work, trusting that in our efforts, God will work, rescue people, help them walk in repentance. It's an act of surrender. 
that we should do as a family when necessary.
again. or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.